All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? <laughs> Hello, out there. An unsettling noise in your home during the day is nothing too troubling, right? A shift in the walls, the creak of a floorboard. Primally, you'll barely respond to it. Ears won't perk, hair won't raise, butthole won't pucker, 
Up you get when the back door opens, unexpectedly, just after breakfast. Who is it? No real alarm. Sun is up, your guard is down. There's no such thing as ghosts in the daytime. No psycho from the woods creeping up to the porch when the birds are chirping. That is, until there is. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. Daniel the Plant. Nineteen eighty-six, Pepperell, Massachusetts. Something is terribly wrong with sixteen-year-old Daniel Laplante. For one, he has Laplanted himself inside the walls of the home of his love interest, and I don't know why I said for one, as if for two could top how wrong, how strange, how scary it is that Daniel has done this. He's in the walls. It's uncomfortable. For the first few days, but in time, he gets a few pathways going, though he itches terribly from ripping through the insulation. He comes and goes when the coast is clear, heading back home to check in, though nobody there seems to notice he's been gone, or the feral look in his eye from hours of behaving like a sketchy rodent. And soon he sneaks back to his love interest home, raiding the fridge before slipping into the crawl space. Slipping? No, that's not right. It's called a crawl space for good reason. Dirty Danny LaPlante crawls into the crawl space, re-entering the now cozy confines of his low-life labyrinth. Life is quite low, I'd imagine, in the walls of an unsuspecting family's home. And of course, as you may have guessed, he cuts small holes in the walls to keep an eye on everything. Peepholes. Danny, if you couldn't tell, is a creepy kid. And he creeps through the walls for months like a very large rat. He's good at it, being creepy. As the girl he's here to spy on knows a little of already, just a little, of this whole lot of creepiness. The 15-year-old girl and her sister are grieving their mother's recent death from cancer when Danny LaPlante begins living in the walls. Their father works long hours, and the girls are often left to fend for themselves after their mother's passing. The house is old and spooky by itself without what's happening now and what is happening. They assume it's the ghost of their mother, and for a while it's really nice. The recent noises in the night, the tapping and the shuffling coming from upstairs when they're downstairs, downstairs when they're upstairs. They think it all started when they messed around with a Ouija board in the basement. And it had, but the entity they communicated with was not supernatural, or even natural. It was Danny LaPlante, his eye peering from the wall, filthy hands quietly itching fiberglass from his puby beard. They'd briefly dated this teenage girl and Danny, and by briefly dated I mean they went on one brief date. He tricked her. And yes, I know her name, but I'm trying to grow here. If this happened to you, would you want me saying your name? I wouldn't. Not me saying it, at least. Jack Luna? Yuck. What a creep. Let the dignified news person wannabes and YouTubers handle victim shoutouts and such with their doe eyes and hand wringing. I'm good. I just want to tell a true crime story to my friends and make some money. <laughs> Anyways, enough. Let me get back. 
behind this fourth wall. Oh, hey, Danny, hey, you stink, buddy. You need some deodorant. He tricked her. Finding her number in a little black book during one of his many break-ins, he called her during summer's break, pretending to be a tall, blonde, handsome athlete who noticed her and tracked her number down through mutual friends. Danny, despite his true nature, could be quite charming, apparently, as the girl soon agreed to meet. And when they had, he'd seen the disappointment in her eyes, felt her pity, then eventually her disgust in his presence. Tall? How about gangly? Blonde? His hair's black. Greasy black. Athletic? More brutish. And handsome. Maybe if you're into 16-year-olds who look like New York cab drivers from the 80s. Danny LaPlante is unhygienic. Rude. Picture a young Robert De Niro mixed with an open tin of greasy sardines. Why had he asked about her mother so much? Damn it! He couldn't help it. Death fascinated the boy, especially that of a mother. How strange, how oddly exciting. Danny has a mother, and she mothers him too much. It's weird to think of her dead. Dad, on the other hand, not so weird. He wouldn't mind that. It is October, Halloween season. And the love Danny had felt blossom in his heart that magical summer's night down at the fair was now wilted in his chest like a collected rose. He hadn't thought he'd had a heart until she'd broken it. It aches. It bleeds for the girl. But as the cold winds begin to blow and dead leaves shower this broken home with autumn's rotten confetti, a young man's celebration of finding love in a world he'd previously thought only full of abuse and hardships, comes to a close. Even love has evil in it. Spell it backwards. I'll show you. And that's Eminem. Uh, Every jilted moron's favorite line from Eminem. The tapping on the walls is nonstop when the father's at work. The girl's initial excitement in thinking their mother is communicating with them from beyond soon curdles into fear. When they realize the spirit or whatever they've released by screwing with the Ouija board is malevolent. Like I said, it only taps or moans or shuffles around when their father is gone. And when they tell dad about what's happening, he doesn't believe them. Dad thinks they're making it up and is even upset by their claims. The recent death of his wife must have put tremendous pressure on him. Tremendous grief. And now his kids are showing signs of unhealthy coping. It's a lot for all of them. And Danny LaPlante has a front row seat to this tragedy. He even has strings that he pulls delightedly, increasing the tension and agitating the pain of this family at will. But then he takes it too far. In January of 1987, after a presumably sad Christmas season in this house, lacking the touch of mom, replaced by a mischievous spirit birthed from the touch of small hands and a Ouija board, Danny sees that his tapping and shuffling around in the walls and whispering is no longer provoking the pop of terror that it once had. The girls are tired of it. They've accepted the presence. And though it's nice to be accepted for once, Daniel LaPlante is growing bored of the peeping, the eavesdropping, the subtle attempts to scare up a show, which had satisfied him on a deeply depraved level. This is a 16-year-old boy. I did have to spell out his major motivation here, but after months of cocking every crack back there on the walls, taking care of business and working overtime, he's ready 
to have some real fun. He's in the walls. The tapping coming from the basement is loud and insistent. At first, the girls ignore it. But after a while, Annie looks to her tired and forlorn little sis and decides they've had enough. She grabs a kitchen knife, and the two creep down to the unfinished basement, and she's maybe ready to scream out at whatever's knocking down there when she sees the red writing on the wall. Quote, I'm in your room. Come find me. That works. Danny maybe watches from the wall as the girls go screaming from the basement and out the front door. Their father is summoned by neighbors, and he comes home, annoyed by the whole matter. He arranges counseling for the girls, but two weeks later, in nearly identical circumstances, Danny manages to scare the girls up and out of the house again. This time, the message on the wall reads, quote, I'm back. Find me, if you can. And they go screaming out again, and he's sure that they're gone, so he emerges from a secret entryway to the inner walls, and he trashes the house and flips the furniture, writes in ketchup and mayonnaise all over the walls, things like, Marry me. I'm back. Find me. Then he raids the deceased mother's closet, dressing violently in all of her old shit. He's a visage of Norma Bates. He finds a wig she had used during her chemo process, finds a skirt, puts on makeup, and whisks through the halls to hide in his beloved's room. He waits, ears ringing in the silence, until he hears from outside the girls babbling to a distant neighbor. He has a hatchet. Did I mention that? Nobody believes you, little girls. He waits. The sun begins to dim through the dusty frost frame window. The light in Daniel's crazed eyes brightens in contrast. He is the mother at the window. It's time to bring the girls home. Come home, girls. The door downstairs. Danny steps back into the closet and prepares to attack. She's coming. Upstairs, she's seen the mess, the writing. Perhaps she's even seen the error of her ways. She's coming to him, but much too late. Danny's over it. The father sees the mess, sees the writing, and now he sees his girls have been telling some sort of truth. The neighbors had called him, not for the first time, saying the girls were at their house again, these poor girls. He'd left work, and until now, he'd likely wondered when this would stop. This pain, this sad charade that had been their lives since she passed away. But now, he sees the writing on the wall. This is real somehow. Something bad is happening. Not bad as in your wife died and now your kids are falling apart and now you're falling apart. No. Something really bad, something evil is happening here. And something that he now hears shuffling upstairs tapping has been making it that way there is a coldness that you have to accept when you're a man only women and children and dogs enjoy the possibility of unconditional love a man is loved under the condition that he provides safety security and that's a Chris Rock quote so don't slap me for it he again hears the tapping noise and is doused with guilt that chills into anger. And now he's storming up the stairs, following, what's that now, a moaning sound? 
which leads him to his daughter's room. And there, in the closet, holding a hatchet, is what looks to be his wife. Danny LaPlante is wearing a dress, a blonde wig, and is clearly trying to imitate the man at the door's dead wife. He's cornered. The man is clearly upset. He's coming at him. Danny rushes out of the closet, and of all the scary, subtle shit he's been up to in this house, to this point, him rushing from the closet, dressed as a dead woman, hatchet swinging, is the scariest. And the father agrees. He moves aside for the wailing wraith to pass. And then he stands in his daughter's room, looking around in disbelief at the writing on the wall. They were telling the truth. Whatever that thing was, wasn't their mother or his wife, he thinks. No, he knows, right? It's stumbling down the stairs, howling away. It's banging around the living room. And then finally, after far too long, it's gone. When police arrive, they do a thorough search of the house and surrounding grounds, finding nothing. Considering the state of the home and the nature of the messages written in condiments all over the walls, it is strongly suggested that the family shack up with relatives for a few days while the house is watched by police. After a thorough cleanup, the girls and their father do just that. They lock up and step away for a much-needed break. And I'm sure it's difficult, but at least now they're all on the same page. Maybe the whole crazy incident made them feel like a family again. The stay with relatives gets old quick, however, and it's not long before Dad is suggesting to his girls that they return to the house. And when they finally pull back into their driveway, Daniel LaPlante is waiting for them in an upstairs window, still dressed as the dead mother, the dead wife. Police are summoned, and they arrive in force. When they open the door, it's like crashing a poltergeist swingers party. Cupboards are open, furniture's upside down. The words, marry me, appear to be written in blood on the walls. Pennies are glued all over the ceiling. One of the cops no doubt stands there for a moment, hands on hips, almost teetering a little, you know? Then his hat's off, he's scratching his head, mouthing the words, what in the world? And then a Mormon cop stumbles in like, holy fucking shit. I mean, this is a wild scene. A lot going on, I'm sure. And now everyone is fed up with this situation. The house, already ripped apart, is ripped apart further. Downstairs, behind the washer and dryer, one cop sees a board that's hiding a crawl space. And he notices some disturbed area where it looks like the board has been slid recently. So he slides it himself. And he enters the crawl space. And eventually... He finds a psychopath wearing a dress and a blonde wig with a hatchet stuffed way back in the wall somewhere and makes the arrest, which deserves a medal, in my opinion. I would never go in there once I saw the peepholes and the human form tunnel through the insulation. Uh, sir, there's a bunch of tunnels on the walls, and I think there's a person who's been living in the walls who is no doubt stuffed deep in some secret corner. Just FYI. Also, FYI, I don't want to be a police officer anymore, so ta-ta, fellas. And then I'd French kiss the Mormon cop by the door, who's my secret 1987 boyfriend. And he's like, what in the fucking shit are you doing, Jack? Are you crazy? And I'm like, no, you're crazy, Jacob. There's a smelly brood of a young man dressed as the dead mother of this household living in the gosh darn walls, Jacob. Then we're French kissing again, me and this Mormon cop. Anyways, this tortured family gets their house back. It's demon finally exercised, and Daniel LaPlante is thrown into juvie for a year. 
before he's back to breaking into houses again. And that's not fair. People sure do have a habit of writing something off as stupid when they either don't understand it or it doesn't fit their personal bias, don't they? And I'm trying to grow here. In this situation, my personal bias causes me to immediately assume that the justice system blew it. Again, as they always do back in the 80s and the 70s. And Daniel was simply released back into the wild after a year in juvie. That's what the information told me initially. You know, and then he goes on to do what comes next. But, calming down a bit, digging a little deeper, I find that Daniel was likely released on bail when it was determined he should be tried as an adult. The bail was $10,000, and his mom came up with the money. Regardless, less than three months after his controversial release into his questionable parents' custody, Daniel LaPlante makes everyone involved look stupid. Long before the terror we just waded through, like mangy, piss-colored fiberglass insulation, Danny LaPlante was disturbed. He was mistreated at home, allegedly assaulted physically and sexually by his father for years before receiving help from a psychiatrist who took to sexually abusing Danny himself, which is nice, right? Danny was a mess, and though it doesn't explain why he tormented a family, pretending to be the ghost of a dead mother, and likely planning on murdering two young girls with a hatchet while dressed as their mother, it does give us some insight as to how he could be so brutal, as he was treated so brutally himself. This isn't the end, by the way. All that boy-in-the-wall shit wasn't the brutal part. This is. So he's out by October of 1987. And by late November, he's armed with two handguns procured through one of his many break-ins, performed in the short time he's back on the streets of Townsend, Massachusetts. His break-ins, they are performances. Daniel LaPlante enjoys himself, as we know, when breaking into a home. He's sure to move furniture, lamps, even knickknacks around the house. He likes to make it his own, leave some slime on the scene, mock a home's sanctity. And on December 1st of 87, Danny creeps through the woods between his house and that of the Gustafsson family, a home he'd burglarized already back in mid-November. It's a perfect target for what he plans on achieving. The home rests in a secluded area, and Daniel had maybe become fixated on the family of four he'd seen photos of within. And I have names this time, it feels appropriate. The preceding incident involved surviving victims. Unfortunately, this one does not. It's early afternoon. 33-year-old Priscilla Gustafson has just returned home after a morning of teaching at the local church nursery school. With her, she has her little boy, five-year-old Billy, whom she just picked up from the babysitters. Billy's older sister, Abigail, will return home around 3.30 on the school bus. She's seven years old. In her belly, Mum holds the soon-to-be baby of the Gustafson clan. Dad's at work, excited to tell his wife about the big real estate deal his law firm has just landed. And it's now 1.30 p.m. And Daniel LaPlante is standing out back in the flower garden looking in the window. Like I said, Dad is excited and he will attempt to call his wife more than once this fateful afternoon. He wants to make dinner plans. This deal he's finalizing will be big for them. It is just after 5 p.m. when he finally gets home and he has a bad feeling. Priscilla and he never go too long without touching base. And when he sees her car on the driveway, he wonders 
What in the world could have been keeping her from answering his calls all day? He's not upset, just a little disappointed. But now, looking at the house, hearing nothing going on within, he's scared. And when he opens the door to his home and is met with this dead silence, 34-year-old Andrew Gustafson knows this is somehow the end. No children running to greet him. No wife to hug and kiss and tell the news. No baby on the way. Stop that. He calls out. Hello. His voice feels like that of a stranger's in a strange house. Thank God he doesn't have to go to the bathroom. A father, a husband, heads upstairs in his Townsend, Massachusetts home back in 1987. It's December the 1st and the railing is strung with Christmas decorations. He follows the barely visible prints left by Danny LaPlante, an uninvited guest not keen on wiping his shoes, to find his pregnant wife face down in their bed. She has been raped and murdered. A bleeding pillow covers her head, and he somehow knew it. He can't bring himself to search for the kids. When police arrive, he's outside, and initially, this looks like a potential family annihilator, waiting to be picked up, like trash. They hold the husband, the father, just in case, while officers head slowly into the house. There's writing all over the walls, not clear what it says. There's an open beer on the table, full, a Danny LaPlante special. He was known to uncork wine and set glasses, but not partake. Open up a beer, not partake. It's kind of his thing. The house is silent. Stunned silent. And as the officers open the downstairs, then upstairs bathrooms, they're stunned silent as well. Here is what they figure happened. Somebody was waiting for the pregnant mother and her little boy when they got home after lunch. This someone forced the mother to the bedroom where he raped her at gunpoint, then shot her to death. The little boy was then forced into the upstairs bathroom where this someone drew a bath and then drowned the five-year-old in it. This someone, Danny LaPlante, then went downstairs, drew another bath, cracked himself a beer, didn't take a sip, and waited an hour or so for Abigail to come home. When the little girl came bouncing through the front door, he beat on her, then drowned her like her brother. And how we doing? That's that. That's that, uh, stunned silence. That was pretty bad. A bad thing Daniel LaPlante did. And the similarities to his previous crime with the writing on the wall, the fact that he lived on the other side of the woods just a mile or so away, that in the woods they found a t-shirt of his, along with gloves, still wet from the bath water. They found the Gustafson family nameplate, ditched there, a keepsake for him, I guess. All this including the fact that they found guns later on at his home, tucked away in a abandoned vehicle, made Daniel LaPlante the prime suspect. And two days later, they discovered him 10 miles away from the crime scene, hiding in a dumpster to disguise his smell, I assume, and took him down, Danny laughing maniacally by some accounts. On October 25th of 1988, the then 17-year-old killer still seemed about to burst into hysterics 
when his sentence was handed down. Three life sentences to be served consecutively, life being 15 years before parole consideration. Life being 15 years. Well, I guess when you think about your 15-year-old self, then your 30-year-old self, or your zero-year-old self and your 15-year-old self, that seems like two different lifetimes, doesn't it? But then when you think of being defiled with a baby in your body while your little boy watches, waits to be killed himself once you are, when you think of your little girl coming home to a similar fate, what's a life worth to someone who would do all that anyways? What are we even talking about here? What are we negotiating? You know, and I'm just spitballing here. In 2017, 47-year-old Daniel LaPlante asked during an appeal to be released. He said he'd been uh, mistreated, uh, that this is all fucked up because he was just a kid and they need to uh, figure this out and I've done enough time. Uh, I think it's time for me to go. I'm a different person now. And the Massachusetts justice system said, no. A forensic psychologist shared during that proceeding that the plant presented as having antisocial personality disorder and he had shown no remorse or empathy for his crimes. In 2019, he tried again, like a stubborn old rat looking for a way through the insulation of his confinement, but again, he was stuffed down. LaPlante's next opportunity will come in 2032, when he'll be 62 years old. He wants out, and those beady black eyes of his say that he wants in. If given the chance of spending your life in a prison cell, you, or the walls of someone's house, what would you choose? I might be asking the wrong crowd here. How about this? Would you rather be placed in a medium security prison for the majority of your life or break into as many houses as possible and annihilate all of the women and children within? What's your answer? Now, what do you think Daniel LaPlante's would be? <laughs> That's a strange way of looking at things, but some people say I'm a kind of a strange guy, you know? You only need to look at him to know what his answer would be. And they only need to release him to confirm it. And that'll do it. Incredible that a teenager created all that chaos, but they built them different in the 80s, didn't they? I love all that. All that proud to be an 80s kid built in 1970s shit. Shut up. Being proud is something you had no control of whatsoever. It really is getting incredibly stupid out there. Uh, the best is the t-shirts they put on social media, tailored directly to your personal information that you put on Facebook. I'm a Scorpio, born in 1980, living in Manitoba with a Taurus. Don't mess with me. Oh my god, babe. Oh, this is so us. People tagging each other in the comments. We need this t-shirt. This is so us. Don't mess with a Luna. 5,000 Lunas in the comments section. Need this t-shirt. Oh my god, take my money. Take idiots. Anyways. I was in a good mood before I started talking about Daniel LaPlante. Not sure what got me into that. Oh yeah, right, right. I do a podcast called Dark Topic once a month. Once once a month or every two months. <laughs> I'm trying. Guys, hey, if you want more content, I do a lot on patreon.com slash dark topic. Come join the more than 1,000 people over there for exclusive content. And that being said, I have some special people to shout out from over there. Rebecca Withers. Crystal Soenxen, Reiki Liu, Daniel, William Bennett, Lynn Earlywine, Nat, my buddy John Kelly, Jane Brzezinski, 
Brandy. Kendria Wells Young. Erica Bradford. And Terry Bretched. How you doing there, Terry? Thank you for your high-level support over there on Patreon. And thank you to everyone who's come over to Patreon uh, to support Dark Topic and uh, help me transition. <laughs> um, I really appreciate it. And other than that, please rate and review the podcast. It really helps. What else? I don't know. Just, you know, like kids, man. Stories about kids. Kids are really great, but they're only as good as you make them feel. Uh, I'm proud to say I have a couple of really good kids. I hope to. that's because I make them feel good, you know? Now watch one of them end up in his ex-girlfriend's closet wearing a dead woman's wedding dress and wig. Some reports said it was the wedding dress, but I don't know. There was enough going on there without trying to stretch it. Speaking of stretching it, I guess I'm trying to stretch this episode out so you're fooled in the beginning thinking it was longer than it was. I hope you're all enjoying your summer, and I'll be right back. Like Tom Hanks at the beginning of Castaway, I'll be right back. Remember when he said that? And then he wasn't back for a really long time? Uh, I'll, I'll be back. I'm back. If I was ever here in the first place, I'm back. To Dark Topic exclusively, and I'm going to promise you right now, I'm going to guarantee you right now, I never do this. Maybe I do. I don't remember. I'm sober. I've been sober for a little while now. I've been drunk a lot in the past, so I'm not sure if I've ever done this before, but I guarantee that I'll be back in your ear again next week. So until then, check your walls for peepholes, your insulation for pee holes, and keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, and stay paranoid. Thank you. A father, a husband. Heads upstairs in his Townsend, Massachusetts, oh fuck, Massachusetts.